And we're going to talk about true worship today. So we're going to be in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Everyone in this room, we all share a common disorder. We all share a common disorder. Let me, let me give you some of the symptoms of the disorder and see if it resonates with you, if you recognize it in your life. It starts out way back when we were, when we were little, when we were little shavers, when we were toddlers. Uh, if only I had that toy, then my life would be complete. And then we go to elementary school. If only I was in middle school, then my life would be complete. And then when we're in middle school, we're looking to high school and be like, if only I was in high school and had my driver's license, then my life would be complete. And then we go to college. Oh, if only I didn't have to go to class to get that degree, right? At least that was me. Then my life would be complete. And then you graduate from college and you're, you're a young pro. If only I had that job or I got that promotion, then my life would be complete. Then you're single. It's like, oh, if only I got married, then my life would be complete and I would be happy. The if only disorder. disorder. Did any of you guys recognize that in your life? Go ahead and raise, that, raise your hand. Raise it up high. Raise it up high. We all share in this disorder. We all struggle with this disorder in some way. And the root cause of this if only disorder is it's a, it's a worship problem. It's a worship problem. We think that if only I had this, then my life would be complete. And yet we see that that's not the case. I read an article this week on a guy named Marcus Pearson. You guys know who Marcus Pearson is? Some of you gamers might know. He's the one that created Minecraft. And he sold it as a young man for billions of dollars. And he went out and he bought a $70 million home to live in. And then he started to tweet some uh, tweets on Twitter. And this is what he said. He's one that actually overcame the if-only disorder because he had everything that we desire in life or the world says is valuable and will give you satisfaction. This is what he wrote in a couple tweets. He said, the problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying. And the human interaction becomes impossible due to imbalance. He goes on to say in another tweet, hanging out in, in Biza with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people all the time, able to do whatever I want, and then he said this, and I've never felt more isolated or alone. If only. You see, if you and I build our lives on this if only disorder and try and quench our thirst of our soul with any other functional savior outside of Christ himself, we seek satisfaction from some, anything outside of Christ ourself. As one said, we will end up a sad person, a lonely person, a guilty person, or an angry person. And this morning we get to turn to the, to the Word of God the, and, 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 and draw from the living water from the well of Jesus. We see that Jesus, the great physician here, divinely sets up an appointment at a well to cure a parched woman's soul of her worship problem. And really it's, it's our problem too. We can see ourselves in this woman this morning. And the remedy He's prescribes is the gift of God, the living water, again, which will quench our soul's, for, our, th our soul's thirst that leads to true worship and total satisfaction. So let's look at this text together. First we see in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 4, the unexpected meeting, the unexpected meeting, at least for the woman, unexpected. 
We know in John 1 through 6, we see Jesus is making a, a journey. He's going from the south Judea and he's going to Galilee to do ministry. This is early on in his ministry. And John 4, 4 says, and he, Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. You need to circle that word had to because there could have been a multiple different ways in which Jesus could have gone, but he had to. He purposed in his heart to go through Samaria. Now, this is an incredible um, uh word and, and thought, and as we'll see in a second, that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. We see that he finally gets there in verse 6, and he goes to this well. He's tired of the journey. He's tired of the hike. So he sends the disciples, his boys, to go get some Chick-fil-A in the city. He's just going to sit at the well and rest and wait for his lunch. The well back in those days was kind of like a, 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 our coffee shops or a, a restaurant. It's where you would go, one, to get water. All right, to, to, to fuel your body, but also it's a place you would go to fellowship, to hang out. And so Jesus is there and he comes in contact with a woman in verse seven. It says a woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city again to go get him some Chick-fil-A. Um, and then the Samaritan woman said to him, how is that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? This is why that word Jesus had to go. There's a providential meeting that Jesus is purposing in his, in his life to go and meet this woman. It's unexpected to her, and she even says it. How are you, a Jew, going to ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And for us to fully grasp the significance of what is being asked here is Jesus... Um, is, is the relationship between the Jews and Samaritans. They hate each other. They hate each other. Jews looked at Samaritans as half-breeds. In fact, we can just turn on our TVs this past week and we saw that the, the Jews and the Samaritans were, were, were bombing each other, were shooting missiles at each other for like a week plus. It's, it's been going on since Genesis. Uh, these two groups have hated one another. And so Jesus comes in and meets with this woman and he crosses over a lot of barriers. And again, if you were a Jew, you would do everything possible not to come in contact with a Samaritan. That's why Jesus, most, uh, most Jews, uh, if they were going from Judea to uh, Galilee, they would walk around Samaria. They would, they would add a three days extra to their trip so they wouldn't have to walk through Samaria and deal with any of those dogs, they would call them. And so you see this, this, this hatred. And this is why this meeting at the well is so, so incredible. And so Jesus deciding to go through Samaria, he was, again was bucking the cultural norms of the day, especially as a Jewish rabbi, as a Jewish teacher. So it's amazing just that he's at a well in Samaria and he asks this woman for a drink. But it even gets more scandalous than that. Let me give you a couple more bullet points of why this is so scandalous. One, a Jewish rabbi would never have asked a Samaritan or any Gentile for a glass of water or necessarily drink from that cup from them because it would make them unclean, ceremonially unclean. Two, a Jewish man rarely, uh, and in particular a rabbi, rarely talked to Jewish women unless their husbands were with them in public. They rarely talked to Jewish women. So Jesus being a rabbi, there would be no way on planet Earth that any other rabbi would talk to a Samaritan woman in public. And three, at the time of day. It says it was the sixth hour. It means it was noontime. Generally, the, the good women would come in the early morning or later in the evening to draw water, the respectable women. The women that came at noon to go to the, the well, they were the prostitutes. 
They were the outcasts. And so this is where this Samaritan woman is going. She's going to get this water at noon. So she's even a, a social outcast as a Samaritan in the Samaritan community. And we know why, because she is seen as probably a loose woman having five husbands and now with a man who's not her six. So this is an incredibly, uh, an, an incredible scandalous meeting. And yet Jesus had to pass through Samaria to meet with this woman. Jesus engages this woman. He's crossing over again, going against the grain of all the popular, uh, the popular religious cultural norms of the day. And Jesus says to her, he answers her question, if you knew the gift of God, who it is, not only the gift of God, but who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And this is what the love of God does. It, it propels Jesus, it propels us to cross over these social and cultural boundaries to give someone as a part soul living water, to give them the gospel. You see, Jesus crossed over the ethnic divide. He crossed over the, um, the uh, gender divide. He crossed over the moral and social divide. He crossed over the religious and political divide to share the good news of the gospel and to share himself. He wanted to bring these people together and bring her to, again, saving faith. Because this is what saves people that are at odds with one another. It's the gospel. It's Christ himself. It's not, it's not your thoughts on intersectionality. It's not your thoughts on critical race theory. It's not being woke. Crossing the boundary and bringing people together is about giving people the living water of the gospel. It's giving them Jesus he didn't care what the social norms of the day were because this woman was hurting and she needed the gift that he had to give her. The gospel, the gift of God. And this is just, just want to pause and raise the question. Raise the question for us this morning. Who are the Samaritans in your life? Who are the Samaritans in Fort Collins, Colorado, in Loveland, in Greeley, in Windsor? Who are, who are the Samaritans in your office building? Who are the Samaritans on your campus? Where the Samaritans hang out? Where are their wells? If, if Jesus was around today, he would, he would spend some time there, again, bringing them living water, bringing them the gospel. He's not here, but you and I are here. And it's, it's, it's our job as ambassadors to go and meet the Samaritans where we're at. If, if, if the love of God has been shed abroad in your heart, in my heart, it should propel us to go and look for the Samaritans in our culture the outcasts, those who are suffering and hurting. Well, in this unexpected meeting, we see also the scope of the gift of God, the gospel. It's given for everyone. If it's given for this Samaritan woman, it's given for everyone. And again, Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, the key word there is gift. This is so crucial for us in understanding the gospel and giving the gospel away because if Obtaining salvation depended on doing something to earn it, our ability, that would limit the scope of who could receive the gospel, could it not? Individuals would have to have a chance to earn their salvation, so the, the factor in salvation would be a person's ability, and let's just be honest, as we look around and as we know each other, we all have different abilities. We all have different financial status. We all have different physical abilities. We all have different intellectual abilities. We all have different socially. So if it was about earning your salvation, we would think that guys like Nicodemus back in John 3, the religious elite, right? The political elite, the ones that seem to have it all together, they, they would be the insiders that would have the best chance for this salvation. 
And the Samaritan woman, an outsider, would have little, if any, chance. No influence, immoral, etc. would be her background. She would have no hope. But we see receiving the gift of God, it's a, it's a gift. It's freely given. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. It's something that God bestows to you because of what He has done. No matter what your abilities are, because it's not about what you can do, but it's about what Jesus has done in His life, His death, and His resurrection. And not only about not what you can do, but not what you have done. So many people you hear, it's like, oh, I, I can't come to Jesus because my, my past is too dirty. I'm too sinful. You don't, you don't know what I have done. But it doesn't matter what you have done because this is, this is the gospel and this is what is so, so good. In Jesus, there's more grace and mercy than sin in you and sin in me. That's the gospel. That's where the hope is. It's in Jesus and what He has done for sinners like you and me, for people like the woman of the well. That's the gift of God. Isn't that the best news you've ever heard of? Isn't that the best news you've heard of in your life? Because in reality, we're all outsiders. And if God doesn't enter into our time, He doesn't live the perfect life in your place and my place, the life that we were called to live, He doesn't die on the cross to make payment for the sin that we've committed, that we should have made payment for, if He doesn't bury and raise again, we would be an outsider with no, no hope. But yet He does. Yet He does. And here's the other cool thing about this conversation, this portion of Scripture in John 4. Jesus comes in contact with a number of individuals throughout Scripture, and their, their, their dialogue is recorded. John chapter 4, his dialogue with the woman at the well is the longest recorded conversation in the Bible that Jesus has with someone. Isn't that incredible? In the, with an outsider, with someone that is hurting, one as an outcast. The longest recorded conversation we have in Holy Scripture is Jesus and the woman of the well. Not with a religious elite, not with a political elite, not with the who's who in society, with the kings or the princes, but with this woman. And hopefully this gives you hope this morning. Because if he's talking to her, he's talking to you and to me. So we see again the, the unexpected meeting. Secondly, we see the ultimate thirst question. 11 through 15. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? And he goes on in verse 12. She goes, Are you greater than our father Jacob? And I just wish, you know, I was like, I put in parentheses, yeah, just a little bit. You know, wouldn't you just like have some of that sarcasm in there? Yeah, I'm a little bit better than Jacob, but it's not there. It's just Aaron's input. Um, he gave us the well, and he drank from it himself. And he did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. If you have a Bible right now, that should be underlined, that should be highlighted, that should be starred, that should be committed to memory. Because you will be going back to this verse over and over again in your life. This water that I give you will become in him or her a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me some of this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come back here to draw. We see that the woman is still is kind of 
in this physical realm where Jesus is trying to get to her heart, trying to get to her soul, trying to get to her, her spirit. And she doesn't quite understand. It's kind of like, you know, when, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus and like, Nicodemus, you're a religious man. You need to be born again, right? And, and Nicodemus, I didn't compute because he was thinking on this physical plane. He'd be like, man, Nicodemus was like, man, that would suck for my mom, right? If I had this grown man, I'd go back into the womb. That would, that would be terrible, right? They're, they're, but, but Jesus is using a physical analogy to talk about a spiritual reality. So Jesus asks this great question, trying to get her to go from thinking at a physical uh, level to her soul's thirst, to a spiritual level. Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. Remember, we started out with the if-only disorder. The if only disorder for this woman was she, she looked for her satisfaction. She looked for her, her soul's needs to be met through men, through relationship, through being loved. But every relationship she had tried had left her unsatisfied and her soul thirsty, her soul parched. And you can write this verse down over every functional savior that we try and find our soul's satisfaction in. You drink of the water, drink of that water, you worship the, the idols that we worship that you think will satisfy you, but you'll be thirsty again. Functional saviors always overpromise and underdeliver. Jeremiah 2.3 says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountains of living water, have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So that verse right there in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty for again. Everyone who goes after those functional saviors to, to satisfy the souls of their life will never be satisfied, will always be parched. I was reading another article about this, this man, David Foster Walker. He was a contemporary art, art, uh, author in our time, very well known in some... In fact, many think that this guy in the last 20 years has been one of the most influential and innovative authors of our time. He was an atheist. He was a college professor. He was speaking at a Kenyan college, the commencement service, and this is what he said. He said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, and by the way, I think I already said he was an atheist, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. Worships. The only choice is what we worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. It is the truth. Worship on your, well, worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when the time of age starts showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. It never satisfies. So the question again we ask ourselves is, are you parched this morning? Is your soul, is your spirit parched this morning? And the question you and I have to ask ourselves, whether we're a Christian or not a Christian, is this, what are, where, what are the wells that you are digging up to try and find satisfaction for your soul outside of Christ? If your soul is parched, if your soul is thirsty, it's a, it's a worship problem. You're going to all these different wells that will never satisfy. Where do you and I need to look? 
to. We need to look to Jesus and not functional saviors. These other wells. Are you looking for success? Popularity? Are you digging in the wells of praise and acceptance by others right now? Is that what you're longing for to, for your soul's satisfaction? Jesus says, if it's anything else but me, you will always be thirsty. Your soul will always be parched. Because it's in me where your souls will be satisfied. And John tells us a couple chapters later where we find this living water to really answer this question that the woman's been asking. In John 7.37, he says this, if anyone, again, there's the scope, whether you're an insider or outsider, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Holy Spirit. And so what we're saying here, Jesus says, living water is salvation. It's, a, it's the gift of God that has been uh, purchased by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and then applied by the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit in our lives. It was prophesied back in Ezekiel chapter 36. It was fulfilled in Jesus and then it was carried on in Titus chapter 3. Have you tasted this living water this morning? And again, there might be some of us in here that are Christians that have, have trusted in Christ, have repented and said, I'm, 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 I'm struggling, I'm still parched. And again, the question might be asked is, where are you drinking from right now? And if you're drinking from these other wells, Jesus is inviting you to come back to Him for a drink. Come back to Jesus for a drink for your soul's satisfaction. And that leads us to our third and final point, the uniqueness of Christian worship. The uniqueness of Christian worship. Verses 19 through 26. Look at John 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Nice. Well done. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And again, she's, start, she's starting to get it, but then she tries to deflect it to get, get the conversation off of her and onto something else. And Jesus won't fall for it. He says, Jesus says to her, Women, uh, woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. So Jesus answers her question. She says salvation has been revealed through Israel, through Jews. That's where God is, the true God. And there's a day that's coming and has come as we look back. It has come in Jesus where it's not about worshiping in a certain place. It's not this mountain or this mountain. It's not this temple or this temple, but it's in the person, the one and only Jesus Christ, the one who would die for the sins of the world. And when we see Jesus use this word hour, he's always referring to in the Gospel of John about his death. So when he says an hour is coming, when neither on this mountain or not. He's talking about his death and his resurrection. He's pointing to what he says in verses 25 and 26. He's pointing her to the Messiah, to the Christ. He's pointing her not to a place, but to himself. Where he says, I am he. Again, Jesus has been going on in his earthly ministry. And he hasn't been really playing, letting his cards show in his cards, so to speak. And this is the first time or one of the first times he opens up his cards and he reveals himself to this woman first and foremost that he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. So we see here is Jesus saying that worship, therefore, is not about a where, but it's about a who. He goes on to say in verse 
23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such a people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now this is just an amazing point of Scripture. Again, verses 23 and 24 should be highlighted, underlined, starred. You should, this is where your soul should, should plant itself. Because this is what's amazing about this conversation. It starts out about, hey, will you give me a drink of water? And it ends up bringing true worship and the uniqueness of Christian worship. They start talking about the true and living water. This verse, this section is all about true worship. And don't miss that. Make sure you get that. This section, these two verses, reveal to us what it looks like to be a true worshiper of Jesus. He gives her a slight rebuke when he says, you worship, you do not know. That's false worship. But here's what true worship is. True worship is worshiper is people when they worship in spirit and in truth. Why does it spirit and truth? Because it tells us that God is spirit and God needs to be worshiped as he has commanded himself. And he says true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. So if you and I want to be true worshipers of Jesus, of Jesus, we must worship him in spirit and in truth. Both and they go together. Some churches just worship in spirit, right? And those are the, 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 the crazy, emotional gatherings. And on the other hand, you just have some churches that are the frozen chosen. They just worship in, in truth. And you're like, do you even have a soul? You know, Jesus says, no, a true church worships both in spirit and in truth. What does that mean, spirit? Well, good Bible commentators differ. Some say it just refers to our human spirit. That's an internal, that, that, that worship begins in our hearts. That's where it begins. It, in, it begins within our hearts. Not, it's not some outside activity that we do, but it's an inward reality, which is good. Others believe it refers to the Holy Spirit working us. I don't think it's a if, I don't think it's a, a either or. I think it's a both and. I think it's a both and. If the Holy, it's, it's the Holy Spirit that awakens our heart that causes us to see the beauty and the splendor and the power of God the Father that causes us to worship. It's the, the Holy Spirit that stirs our affections, that stirs our emotions, that, that we celebrate and rejoice and we sing and give thanks because we understand what God has given to us. It's the Holy Spirit who opens up our eyes to see the Savior in our need. It's a both and. It's the, it's the Holy Spirit working in our spirit so that we can see God correctly. That's what it means to worship in spirit. But then in truth, what does it mean to worship in truth? Well, it means that we worship as God reveals himself in his word. In his word. And he's revealed himself primarily in his word through Jesus. Through Jesus, the living word. So this is what it looks like. This is, this is who the Lord is seeking. He's seeking true worshipers. And true worshipers worship him in spirit and in truth. So what does that look like? What does it look like to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth? Here are a couple examples that I thought of as I was thinking through what this looks like. It looks like this. It looks like when we wake up in the morning, we see that sun start to rise from the east. And a new day is dying. It reminds us of Lamentations chapter 3, where it tells us that God's mercies renew each and every morning. That He's faithful. That His steadfast love will never end. We're, we're, we're amazed by the beauty of the sunrise. And that points is like what's even more beautiful is how God loves us, how he's faithful to us. This is the thing that gives our soul hope. 
You know that feeling. I know that feeling. I think of last week when we baptized Lorinda. Baptism. How we, we sat there and we heard her story. We heard her story of brokenness. We heard her story of sin. And then we heard her story of rejoicing because she met and drank from the well of Jesus. We, we, we heard a story of someone crossing over from death to life. And I don't know about you, but I shed a tear. But my heart was, those were tears of joy and rejoicing. Because we saw what the Lord did in her life, but also it was just a reminder of what the Lord did in my life. It moved my heart to move my emotions. We, we, we take communion each and every week. And when we hold that, that bread in our hand, when we hold that fruit of the vine in our hand, Again, it's a reminder of God's goodness to us. It's a reminder of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It reminds us of Jesus' life and death on the cross for us. So when we walk through those doors and we feel guilty, when we feel ashamed for that sin we just can't, we just can't seem to get over, it still seems to have a hold on us, we, we, we take that communion. It's a reminder that Jesus loves us. And we can be assured that He will never leave or forsake us because of what He has done. That our sins have been forgiven and He doesn't see us as a, a guilty sinner, but He sees us as a washed saint. We, we, we hold these things and, and they're physical reminders of the spiritual reality that moves our soul to assurance. If you walk in here and you're doubting it's, it's these elements that point us to Jesus and what He has done for you and what He's done for me. Because it's not how hard we hold on to Jesus, but it's how He holds on to us. And nothing can snatch us out of His hand. We know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus again because of what we celebrate. This is what it means for true worshipers to worship in spirit and in truth. When you hear a, when you hear a good sermon, you hear the word preached here. And God uses His Word by His Spirit to convict you of your sin and to move you from one degree of glory to the next, to move you more and more like Jesus, the sanctification process, to you love like Him, you serve more like Jesus, you're, you're growing like Him. This is what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. When we sing songs about the gospel each and every day, man, I love that we sing songs about the gospel here and not Jesus is my boyfriend kind of music. You know what I'm saying? It's like we sing songs about the gospel. We see songs that, that say this, all of our sickness, all of our sorrow, Jesus carried up the hill. He has walked this path before us. He is walking with us still. Turning tragedy into triumph, turning agony into praise, there is blessing in the battle, so take heart and stand amazed. When we sing songs about the gospel, it should move our spirit to worship and to praise because we're, again, worshiping in spirit and truth. Our spirits rejoice and we have peace because there, again, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. This is who God is looking for. This is who He's seeking. True worshipers. Worshipers that worship in spirit and in truth. So let's, let's take this, this story and, uh, and apply it to our lives. Let's take what God is looking for, worshipers in spirit and truth, and apply it to our lives again. Humbling our spirits to be empowered and led by the Holy Spirit, informed by God's Word. 
and to walk in community with one another at a, on a daily basis, at a weekly basis, at a monthly basis, as a lifelong basis, that we would worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for this word. Lord, it just shows your goodness to us that you are looking for true worshipers, those who worship in spirit and in truth. And again, you give us what you're looking for. We know exactly what you're looking for. And not only do you leave it up to us, but as we've just gone, you, you, you not only give us the good gift of God, but you give us Jesus. You give us your spirit. You give us your word. That, that all these things, you give us the abilities now to worship you the way you have commanded us to worship. And it's a beautiful thing. So Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here that is, that is parched, that they would, they would hear Your words to them directly. They would hear You speaking directly to them as You spoke directly to the woman at the well. You drink of all these other functional saviors, you're going to be thirsty. But if you come to Me and you repent of your sins and trust in Me, you are going to get living water that's going to well up to eternal life and ultimate joy and satisfaction in this life and in the next. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.